0: Jamie McLennan, throughout your entire hockey career, who are three of your all-time favorite teammates?
1: Uh, it's easy to say a guy like Jerome McGinley because he's a Hall of Famer, a great player, and I, it, he would be mad at me if I didn't say him because uh, we are very close. We've got a, a little boys group that still travels together in the summer, so I will say Jerome McGinley. He doesn't have to be number one, but he is in my top three. Um Jason Strudwick I don't know if you know that name he uh famous famous Islander defenseman very I don't know I would say his jersey's not in the rafters yet but maybe off ice hall of fame for for Struddy. um Tyson Nash would be another one um you know kind of a uh grittier player in St. Louis and I obviously honor, honorable mention to some of my St. Louis teammates too like uh, Chris Pronger, I'm very close with. So you know Prongs, I was just at his jersey retirement in St. Louis. So I, I will say this: I'm getting long-winded. Um, I was very fortunate to play with some amazing guys, and I'm still very close with a lot of guys. Robin Regier, Rat Warner, you name it. Like I, I, we have a group text. There's a lot of us still talk. So uh, I'm lucky to only name three, but I could name. 10 or 12. I
0: love those choices, Jamie. Unfortunately, I only know one of the legends that you mentioned, and that would be Jason Strudwick. So uh, (laughs) welcome to hockey press pass presented by Instat hockey, the main street board game cafe in Huntington village. And by hello, fresh America's number one meal kit. Our guest is Jamie McLennan, the former NHL goaltender with the Islanders blues, wild flames, Rangers, and Panthers. The winner in 1998, of the Masterton Trophy for a a remarkable comeback season in St. Louis. And now he's an outstanding analyst, color commentator on TSN, the NHL Network, and many other places. Thanks so much for doing this, Jamie.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's quite exciting to reconnect uh, with both of you. I mean, uh, we have a long, long history going back to my days with the island. So I I love it. And when you reached out, I was like, I'm excited. Let me know when.
0: Thanks, Jamie. And thanks also to Lou Pellegrino, who's producing and engineering and is joining us as well. Was there a point in your playing career where, because this is a show about hockey media, was there a point in your playing career where you thought, I'm gonna, I wouldn't mind taking a run at broadcasting or being an analyst? Because I know you were kind of on the coaching track first.
1: I was on the coaching track. Um, I kind of, I would say I backdoored my way into it. As you know, I was always a chatter and a guy who wasn't shy to, to you know, be talk a lot. I, I I talked a lot when I played. I was kind of a rah-rah guy in the room. So you know, being a backup goaltender, you have to bring something else to the table than just being a lump uh, sitting there. So um, I always felt like maybe that was something I could do. I enjoyed it. I always got along with a lot of the media members, and and I wouldn't say develop friendships, but certainly there was, I think, some mutual respect. Um, I remember kind of at 33, 34 years old, you start to take a look at some, you know, you start to know your yourself a little bit more saying, okay, how long am I going to play? What do I want to do in my next life? Um, you know, and that's, I, I was on the path to coaching. I'll be honest. I loved it, but I also hated it. Um, it, it was, it was really weird to go from playing to being, you know, associate coach, I they called me an assistant coach, I was just, I was the goalie coach in Calgary, um, and seen behind the curtain, so all those guys in the room are some of my best friends, Mika Kiprasov, Roman Gear, Jerome McGann, like guys like that, who I played with and gone to war with, and all of a sudden, you, the business side of hockey is like, man, oh man, this is, uh, I, you know, I always say if they're saying stuff about those guys, what were they saying about me behind the you know, closed door? So it kind of, I always talk about that because uh, the other thing I realized very quickly as, as a coach, you can have the greatest day of your life. You set the guys up for success. You do all your pre-scouts you're You, you think, okay, they're ready to go. And you lose seven, one that night. And, Those guys go for dinner and beers and you're sitting in the coach's room going, what the hell just happened? And the owner's pissed off and there's, you know, there's all sorts of things to answer for. So as a coach, you live it for 24 hours a day, whereas players you just play and it's better to have amnesia and just move on. So that was my biggest eye opener as a coach um, that I love coaching. I love being a part of the team still kind of that dynamic. I didn't love the, the business side of it. I I didn't, I didn't love how, you know, I I feel like there's a reason why coaches either have no hair or gray hair because it's so stressful. So um, I was, you know, fortunate enough when I got let go in Calgary, um, I had an opportunity to to join TSN and, and started working at that. And and you know, whatever. Eleven years later, I'm I'm doing it, so I'm still ram. I'm rambling, getting long-winded. That's why I guess I'm talking for eleven.
0: <laughs> not at all. Coaching is an impossible position. Great evidence yeah. right now is that like people on Long Island are actually talking about you know should Barry Trots get fired? When the guy Ooh. like could, he couldn't be more. Of a couldn't have been more of a miracle worker after a half season. Yeah. Also, every coach I know, Jamie, just about, including some very successful ones and some not so successful ones always said to me, Man, I wish at some point I made the transition to become like a general manager, because that's that's where the security is is more. So my yeah. question on my question on the career though is I've talked to a lot of former players on the show and they said that whether they went straight from being a player to a broadcaster or with a couple of years in between, they were just kind of thrown to the walls. It wasn't like there was a training program. Did you have any help, any guidance along <laughs> the way? Did anybody help you out?
1: I I did. I was lucky and fortunate enough. So, my wife works at TSN, and I had met her when she was actually just an intern on a show called Off the Record. So, her and I dated a little bit, and then reconnected. And now she's a producer and quite up high up at TSN Radio. But I, when I first joined TSN, I I had some pretty good people, you know, helping me out, guys like Steve Dryden, Paul Graham, and. You know Ken Bolden, guys that are still with the, the company, but I said to them, and, and you know to your point, Chris, like it's like they turn the mic on, they expect you just just go, go talk, and you're like, okay, camera, there's somebody talking in my ear, like you know a producer, a director, and I I said really quickly, as a player, I'm used to being coached, so um, I would do some episodes on TV, and and then I would do what's like an air check. With one of the the higher ups. And it was it was funny because they're so good at it. They would just like one time I'm sitting with Paul Graham and we're going over like a, a bats hockey hit. And he pauses it and he goes, What are you doing with your hands? He's like, You're distracting me. He's like, I'm you're busy and and I talk with my hands a lot. And I still to this day do. And I feel when I get too handsy i put like a pen in my hand so he's like if you put a pen in your hand you won't poke yourself in the eye with it you'll keep it down so there was these little tricks of the trade that i did learn but a lot of it honestly my first night on the nhl and tsn panel tsn had the national broadcast at the time i was with james duffy bob mckenzie and craig mctavish at the time and it was like good luck let's have some fun and you know, keep it loose and don't worry about finding the camera and stuff like that. So there was some little things, but a lot of it is trial and error. And as a player, I think we're conditioned to watch video and to go back good or bad and go, mm, I, you know, I chewed my tongue off there. Or, you know, there's times where you think you're great on air and you're like, oh my God, that was a train wreck and vice versa. There's times where you think it's just a disaster and like, nah, came up, came across pretty decent. So, um, there's not a lot of training; it's just kind of trial and error. And I was fortunate enough to get into radio, and radio is—you get your chops there because you can ramble for five minutes and get to your point. Then, um, so it's a little bit—I uh, think it's better training, put it that way.
0: What is the part about doing this that you is is there if there is one that that you uh, like the least, and also that you know perhaps along the way, especially in those early years, Jamie, that you struggled with?
1: I struggled with, okay, so like the least still to this day, whatever, 11 years in, I hate manufactured chats. I hate, um, you know, BS, like who should be this? Like who's the next captain of that? Who needs like, because you're needing content. So you're just manufacturing it. I like talking hockey. And the fact that during the regular season and during the playoffs, there's content there. I don't like talking what if scenario, who is the best team in Canada? Who's this? Like, I hate that. I've always hated that because it's just now that's for us to talk about and fans to debate. So I understand the content game. I've always liked that the least because you, even as I call it an opinionist, you put your opinion out there, immediately people are disagreeing with you, you know, and you make a statement, you know, a dinner table statement. I, I learned this from, uh, Ken Bolden right away, he said, make your statements, be definitive. And he goes, You want people to steal your opinion like they're like it's yours. And I said, Define. And he goes, You call it dinner table conversation. If I say, you know, Vasilevsky's the best goaltender on the planet, they won't say Jamie McLennan says that, but at a dinner conversation, they'll say Vasilevsky's the best goalie on the planet. Like, you know, it's it's you want them to take your information. So I learned that type of thing. But that's the content part. Um, You know, I just, I I don't like the manufactured stuff. And uh, uh, secondly, what what was it? I lost track on the second question. What was the... uh (laughs)
2: Well,
0: that's a part part that you might have struggled with early on. You know, one thing that I know has come up, I talked to Kelly Rudy, is, you know, do you find yourself being president of the goaltending fraternity? Because how many freaking times do we hear coaches or analysts or somebody say, oh, he should, you know, he should have saved that one. And you know, it's a lot different than that.
1: Yes. Two things on difficult for that. One is what Kelly said, as far as, you know, Somebody's always screaming, like, why doesn't he just stay on his feet? Why doesn't he do this and that? So you're trying to break things down. Secondly, I always found it difficult to be critical of players um, when I knew what I was as a player. So what I, in my mind, wrapped around is if you are honest with respect, I feel like you can say uh, what you mean. You know, I can say... Um, Semyon Varlamov had a bad game. He didn't play very well. I expect more out of him. That's not me saying he's a bad person or he's a bad goaltender or anything. Because again, he'd probably be looking and say, "Who the hell's this guy?" I, you know, I know what his career looked like in an Islanders uniform, like so. But it's more about if you tell the truth or your opinion with respect. I think I found it tough early on to draw that line because you have relationships with people in the league you got to you got to walk in that dressing room but i always felt if i was honest i would have no problem walking into the room the next day and living with my words but i think it takes a little bit to be confident to do that because there are some nights where some guys you really like as people or or as players they have off nights and you have to talk about it cuz it's your job
0: have you had a, any rough patches where maybe even a friend an old teammate or somebody you got to know well you know really didn't love something that you said that's come up a lot Ray Ferraro admitted to a confrontation with uh, somebody in the hallway because Ray said he didn't think he played the game the right way I believe it was a player who's maybe known for dirty hits or questionable hits Uh, I was wondering if you've had that or the worst thing I could think of knowing you a little bit, although it's been a long time is somebody just texting you saying noodles. You really disappointed me with what you said.
1: Last <laughs> year. Like that. that would just be a
0: stake through your heart. Wouldn't it be? It,
1: it would be because I would want, like I'm, I'm somebody, I think if, if people need to, we all know the hockey business is small. So you can get somebody's number and nowadays, you know, through calling somebody, through texting somebody, it's at six degrees of separation. Um, I've only had a couple times where it's really, what's weird has been an agent. I I was critical of a goaltender, which I thought had, I'll just say he had, a, I thought he had a rebound issue. And I, to this day, I still believe he has a rebound issue. Um, but the agent was disappointed in me because he had some personal analytics suggesting that his rebounds weren't that good, or were, were very good. And I said, "I don't care. These are trained goaltender eyes. I'm telling you right now that like, um, he doesn't he doesn't control his rebounds very well." So I had a disagreement with an agent o- with his client over his client um, through text through a colleague. That was it because I said. You know, tell that agent to call me. Here's my phone number. Mm-hmm. And the agent wouldn't call, but then he kept still responding to my friend. Same thing, I had the dad of a player who took two penalties in his first two shifts in the NHL in exhibition, furious with me. And I was like, are you are you watching the same game as I am, your son? And I'm like, why are you upset at me for telling the truth that your son needs to move his feet instead of taking two hooking penalties and again it wasn't through you know that person calling me or texting me it was like third party it was like this guy's pissed off at you and I'm like well tell him I stand by my words because if we want to go back and watch the game tape I I believe I'm correct so it's weird you've had a few of these like I guess is it called confrontations Mm -hmm. but i if I misspeak, the first thing I would do is go. I'm sorry, because you know what? It, you're, you're not in this game to piss people off. You're not in. I, we're in the entertainment business. Like you're in this game to sell the game to to prop people up. If if people have a rough game, I understand that. You you, you talk about it, but I just I love relationships. I you know for the most part, Chris and Lou. I I, I know how you guys you guys know so many people. I think 98 percent of the NHL is is great people. Are there two you know, percent pieces of garbage? Sure. That's in life, man. Like I, you know, I maybe that that formula is a little more or less. I don't know. But I just I think for the most part, like I think there's some great people in the league and I I, I love having relationships with them.
0: If you needed to know, if anybody needs to know what a small world this is, and if I mess up this story, because you might not even know it, you can correct me. But years and years ago, I was asked to go on a radio show that I believe you were one of the hosts on. And uh, I playfully made some reference to, like, oh, yeah, I remember Jamie when he was backup goaltender. I'm like, I don't remember what. And the producer, who's your fiance?
1: Like, <laughs> yes, my wife now. <laughs> <you know?
2: laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Like like what are the chances that she she was just like, uh, you know, oh, you know, I'm gonna tell you know, she was jokingly saying uh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said something jokingly about you and she said she yeah. said, Oh, I know him really well, I'll let him know. And I was like, So like that's you know, that's a small freaking world, right? It um, is. at it the is. risk of <laughs> at at the risk of manufacturing content, it's actually on my list here to ask you about. Um Semyon Var- Varlamov, I believe he is a good... The, the Islander season has not worked out so far the way they hoped. COVID has played a role, the 13-game road trip. He's one of two strong goalies they have. I think when Varlamov is on top of his game, he's a cut above just about anybody else who might be available. I know Fleury is too. But, you know, is Varlamov a guy you could see either being moved or that you would recommend a team that needs a goaltender get?
1: If I'm Edmonton or Boston, I am looking to stabilize or upgrade. Now, Boston has Allmark and Swayman, but I just, I think in a candid moment, if you ask them, I think they thought Rask was going to be available to them. So they kind of, you know, you had Allmark there on a, on term. and Swayman's a good young goaltender, but, you know, you've got, Bergeron, Marchand, you know, those guys are now 30 plus and, you know, the window is closing. I think Boston still wants to be a a team that is a threat. Um, Would they look for an upgrade? Absolutely. Edmonton, same situation. You know, Mike Smith and Koskinen, if you believe that that tandem is, let's just say average, average NHL tandem, they're never available together. It's either, you know, Mike Smith's been hurt two times for stretches, like months at a time. So it's like, okay, go play Koskinen. Okay, well he's not a number one, so what? You have to play him like a number one. Oh, and by the way, you got a 22 year old in Skinner that comes up. So I would say Barlama would be attractive to both. Now, remind me, what's left on his deal? Does he have
0: one year after, left? one year after this year. Okay, so at, one at like around five million, which is manageable. Yeah, I think for it was one. Yeah.
1: Exactly. I thought it was 5-2. See, he's a guy that would be attractive for me because, you know, in the right situation, although I'll be honest, is there a better situation defensively for a goaltender than playing on the island? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, that team doesn't give up a lot of high quality chances. They don't, you know, they're very structured. I, I know I feel bad for them on so many different fronts because of the 13 game road trip. Because they got jammed up. The, what Didn't they play four games before the league shut them down with basically the three of us playing for them? The, like, the at, three what, of
0: us what? and nine guys, you know, Hutton and people, like, you know, with respect to, yeah. to, to Mr. Hutton, like, I just didn't, you know, oh, I, they have him in Bridgeport. It was bad. They, they, they sat. At one point, nine regulars were out.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's been one of those seasons where it's just, uh, it hasn't gone their way. I like that situation. I think Sorkin's a really good goaltender. Um, You know, his numbers have been good. He got kind of jammed up the other night, just playing the back-to-back with the Edmonton-Calgary situation. Because didn't Varley get pulled like after warm-up or something with COVID? Yes, I thought. Yeah,
0: with a COVID test, and he's still in Canada now for six days. So, in that kind of season,
1: it has been. But he's an upgrade. Uh, Just off the top of my head, I, I would. Those are two teams that I would think that at least would be looking at him or somebody like him, a flurry or, you know, Holtby or, you know, NHL goaltender who could stabilize. If I'm Edmonton, you're right, you're looking maybe past this season. So the extra year on the contract might be attractive uh, for a guy like Varlamov to stabilize that position.
0: Okay, I got a quick read here. And when we come back, I got I actually have like 87 questions to ask you about the island. I'm going to try to edit myself as I was prepping for this. I was like, Oh, wow, he was there for that. He was there for that. He wore the fisherman jersey he wore. So uh, when we come back, did you spend Did you spend any time in Huntington Village when you were uh, on the island? main street i did but
1: that that's kind of like a rich area i lived in like Glen cove and like a basement suite i didn't i did keep in mind go back and look at my salary structure back then
0: (laughs) well yes that'll be part of it main street board game cafes in huntington village on long island's north shore games for sale and games for play food and drink beer and wine fun and friends bring the magic of phones down Eyes Up! Tabletop board games to your family. Their staff will help you find the right board game for you. From card and party games, to games for families, to strategy games, they have it all. Get off your screens and unplug your game for a night your family will remember. Looking for groups to join, their Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, or Warhammer communities are welcoming for all. Located at 307 Main Street in Huntington Village, go to Main Street Board Game for more information. Main Street Board Game Cafe. Find your crowd, unplug your game. So, where do we begin? Okay. Draft Day 1991, Islanders were a dynasty a decade before, wind up having a good run a couple years later. What do you remember about Draft Day 1991, second round, I believe?
1: Uh, well, third round, but the fourth pick, and it's 48th overall. Now so now, now it
0: bad. would have been. I,
1: I would be second round, and I tell people that nowadays, too. There was only like 21. I think San Jose was coming into the league that year because Patty Balloon yeah. was a so second round Let's go round with pick. it. High, sec, high second okay. round. High second rounder. Okay, let's call it that. Um, the the coolest thing was, for me, kind of a funny draft story. So Eric, that was the Lindros draft. So it, all eyes were on Lindros. You know in buffalo doesn't put the jersey on like you know uh i had spent some time with eric because i was a a chl award winner and he was winning MVP of the league that or the chl that year um so i was sitting right beside like if you actually go back on the lindros draft like i'm sitting like i'm kind of he wanted me to sit kind of by him so i'm right there um the weird part is I'd spoken to the Islanders scouting staff several times, like several times. So I knew that I was on their radar, but I'd had, you know, you have like meetings with teams and stuff. And my agent was back then there was 12 rounds. My agent was sure that I was going to go. I was the second rated goaltender to go um, behind a guy named Mike Torchia who played in uh, Kitchener and he ended up being, drafted by like Dallas in the fourth round that year, he dropped. So, um, the second round uh, comes around and I'm not lying. I'm sit, I had several meetings with Detroit and like four or five, like in-depth meetings and Detroit is choosing and they're like Detroit red, red wings from choose from Lethbridge of the Western hockey league. And I'm like sitting there, my heart's like, oh my God, oh my God, Jamie. And I, I go to get up, Pusher, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> and push was with me. Like, actually, I played a junior with Bush, Um, so he was sitting in our group too. So he ends up getting drafted, I was like, oh, my God. And my agent leans back, and he goes, I, I thought that was going to happen, but he's like, you know, maybe the Islanders. So then that, that fourth pick in the third round comes, and the Islanders take a timeout, and I'm like, oh, my God, like, now we're in, like – now I'm starting to get rattled and they ended up taking me and get down to the table. It was so cool. I will say this. I was so proud on so many levels. Like think about that organization from a young kid, dynasty, Al Arbor, Bill Tory. Like, you know, there's the, the, the organization just flooded with legends and all the legends were around. Like you go to training camp and it's like, Hey, there's Clark Gillies. There's Bobby Nystrom. Like, Billy Smith is my goalie coach. Butch Goring's the coach in the minors. Like the the team was just, you know, they did a really good job at that time. Kind of just uh, having that winning culture. That 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 just the people around you. Like it was uh, so neat, so classy, so on so many levels, very intimidating. Um, but it couldn't have been a better spot for me. As a young kid, just, you know, St. Albert, Alberta kid, going to training camp and seeing what happened. And, you know, I got lucky enough the first couple of years, kind of a little, you know, a little taste up and down. But my third year, that's when I made made the team. And in
0: 93, 94, you, you wind up playing uh, the, the season and it went to being Al Arbor's last season as an NHL head coach. Uh, positively. Negatively, I mean, goaltenders, I imagine, sometimes got the wrath. I don't know. I don't recall. But what was your personal experience along with Ron Hextall playing under Al Arbor?
1: Um, Nothing. Like, honestly, I cannot, and I'm not lying, I cannot think of a negative thing that Al Arbor ever did that had a negative impact on our room, on our organization, on the team. He was so smart, he was so cagey, like he just knew, like this is a guy that, I think of it, when you have a coach that has all the answers, like he had the answer to everything, you would ask him a question and it was like, you do this because this will happen. Like he was just, it was almost like he, he had seen it all, nothing intimidated him and he was so poised. Yeah, did he give guys heck? Absolutely. That was, that was Al's thing. Like he wasn't shy to give Ray Ferraro a jolt or Pat Flatley or, you know, some of the, you know, he left Hexie alone because he knew Hexy was is a, as intense as anybody. Like I never, I always look at my career and I had amazing mentors because I had Al Arbor as a coach. I had Bill Torrey as a GM. I had Billy Smith as a goalie coach and Ron Hextel as a partner. And I had like Pat Flatley as a captain, Stumpy Thomas in the room, you know, Benoit Hogue. And then there was some young guys, myself, Travis Green, Marty McInnis, Scott Lachance, Ziggy Paulphy. Like there was, you know, Darius Kasparitis, Like there were some pretty good players coming up. So I was really in a good situation. But when I think of Al, I just think he was really funny. Like I just I he would he'd have these one liners that like even if he was pissed off, he'd have a one liner for somebody. And it was just kind of, it wasn't at you. It was really funny. If it was at you, you're like, Oh my God, like I'm, I'll probably cry later, but I'm not going to let him see it now. But it was, he was awesome. I, I, I tell a quick, quick story. Like my first ever NHL game, um, we played a, a neutral site exhibition game against Boston in Albany at the Knickerbocker arena or something like that. And they start me and I'm terrible. I think I allow the first three shots and it's just a disaster. Like I'm, I'm so rattled. I'm in my own head. I can't even, you know, I can't make a save. Al calls a timeout and I go skating over the bench and I can see, I know he knows I'm rattled. And he goes, he leans over and he goes, if I flip the net down and put a bird in there, could a bird escape? And I was like, what? And he's like, just think of this. If I flip the net down and put a bird in there, could a bird fly out through the netting? And I, I like, and then the ref's like, it's like, okay, let's play, let's play. So I get back and I'm staring at him as I go back to the net and he's like, think of that, think of that, could the bird get out? And I was like, what is he talking about? And I ended up, we ended up tying the game and it ended up being a five, five tie. And after the game, he comes to me, he goes, do you have my answer? And I'm like, no, I don't. I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, Good. Neither do I. But he goes, you were so rattled. I didn't know what the hell to say. I just had to say something to get you out of your own head. And I was like, oh, my God, he's a genius because he saw that I was, you know, fragile. I was overwhelmed. And he just got me out of my own head. And it was unbelievable. Like I just that's that's the type of coach you're dealing with. He just knew, you know, what button to press to kind of get me to settle down.
2: Well, Jamie, you you brought up Ron Hextall, and one of the greatest games—I think we have spoken about this in the past, but I want to bring it up now for all the hockey fans that may not remember this game or know this game. It's March 22nd. It's 1994, and we're at Nassau Coliseum. It's Islanders-Tampa Bay. Jamie McLennan starts in net, gives up the first three goals. Hexie comes in in the second period after the third goal. He gives up a goal at 12.45 of the second period. He promptly then wrestles Danton Cole down by his neck. Jamie's on the bench for all of 10 minutes, has to come back into the game. Now, this is where the fun happens. Hexie gets tossed. Jamie's back in after having a sluggish start to the game. Tom Curver scores on the front and back end of a high-sticking double minor. It's 4-2. Go to the third period. Derek King scores to make it 4-3. Steve, Steve Thomas, with about five minutes left, scores to make it four-four. Would you like to take over from here? Do you remember this? What no, I, go, next? I,
1: I, I do, but I just I'd rather you tell it. I just uh, I want to hear like how you think it uh, you know unfolded. Tell me.
2: Okay, so it's four-four. They go to overtime. The Islanders need this win. They're thirty 30-33 and nine on the year. They're fighting to get into the eighth spot. They need this win in the worst way. Pierre Turgeon takes the puck. He goes. Over the blue line, feet first, and then drags the puck over. Tampa Bay stops playing because they think it plays off sides. He sends a pass over to Vladimir Malikov, who pinches in. He unleashes a wicked wrist shot, wrist shot over Darren Poopa's shoulder. Islanders win 5-4, and it was one of the greatest games and crazy games and propelled you guys to the playoffs that year.
1: I, I remember it so vividly because I somebody jokingly in the dressing room was like, Noodles, you did your best, but we still won. And I was laughing because I was like, man, oh, man, like <laughs> – You know, again, there's one of those nights where it's like, you know, you just you have that start and you're like, okay. And I got a second chance. That was the thing. And and I mean, you can't underestimate the fact of Hexie going berserk, that really galvanized the group. Right. Like, that's the difference. Like I I had one other instance with Hexie where we did that was in St. Louis, too, where he attacked Peter Nedved. About three, he started that game and he attacked, attacked Peter Nedved after the third goal. And in St. Louis, the backup goalie was behind like Cujo at the other end. Like, so I just I wasn't even on the bench. And I remember at three nothing seeing Hexi attack the pile after they scored. And I'm like, oh God, I think I'm going in. And I could see Al, like Al looking for me. Like, and, and I'm way to hell at the other end. And he's like waving me. And Ray Ferraro skates down and goes, Al wants you to come in and the door comes open and Cujo's laughing. He goes, good luck, kid. And I'd like skate down. And we ended up tying that game tying five, five. And, but that, like, I think of those incidents with Hexi, you know, do you call it like losing your mind or just is it like strategic, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Hexie's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do something here to get everyone involved. And like, Both of those times, that's what sticks out for me most, is both those times, you can't really say that was Hexy's doing, but Hexy had his fingerprints were all over it. Like Even though others executed, it was like Ron Hextall went in and got this team to, to band together. And same thing, he started that game and went nuts on Nedved, but it was like the guys dug in. After, you know, Hexy came out. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Like I, I remember the terrorist play because you're right. Everyone stopped. And I, I even think we were talking about it afterwards. Like, was it like what, you know, like you're, you're almost doubting it going. Was it offside? That's like when what? I, you know that's I mean? when I
2: learned the rule. That's when I learned the rule. If the guy has puck possession, his feet can go in first. And I never knew that wow. because I'm thinking, who that's kind of offside after seeing like the replays later on in the night after leaving the game. But what was your relationship with Hexie like? Because, you know, there was another game at Madison Square Garden where he gave up the first three goals. You come in. Derek King scores twice. Marty McGinnis scores once. And you leave the garden, which was a tough place to play in those years with a 3-3 tie after you guys had nothing in the first 12 minutes.
1: You know, my relationship with Hexie, if I had one word for it, was respect. Like, I just, I've never seen a guy work that hard, prepare that much. Um you know, his intensity was through the roof. We all knew that you just left him alone and let him do his thing. But man, was he like such a great mentor for me as far as work ethic, the way to prepare all of that stuff. You didn't, you know, he was a more physical guy. He liked to be involved, engaged with with guys physically handled the puck. I still think he's the greatest puck handling goaltender of all time. And nobody's even close. Nobody like, and, I, and there were, I mean, Marty Berdur there's guys that have scored goals. There's, I remember Bob froze being our goalie coach and prosy would have me chart. How many times Hexie touched the puck and what he would do with it during a period. There were times where Hexie would touch the puck 20 times in a period. And he would like, he would give it away maybe once. And and giving it away is him shooting it around in a possession, them keeping it in. Like, there were things that he was doing that were our defensemen couldn't do. Like, he, he had little saucer plays. I mean, he was out there curving his stick before the game, just like a player. He had the torch out and he would curve his stick. Like, he was, he is, I mean, he revolutionized the game for puck handling. And he was the greatest puck handling goaltender of all time. And it's not even close. And I got to see it up close and personal for a full season. Um, I just, I think he made me a good pro. I learned so much from him just as far as how he conducted himself on and off the ice. And, you know, I I, I wouldn't say that I've maintained a friendship with him. But when I do see him, I get to, you know, I I have a good chat with him. And I just think he's a really, I'm sure you guys have chatted with him. He's a kind man. And he's nothing like his on ice, per, you know, persona. Put it that way.
2: He
0: was absolutely fantastic for me to work with. The one season we had him, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So, um, to, to look at the totality of your Islanders' career, and nothing ever goes how any of us uh, would like. But it, it was really like startling for me to see. We had Bruno Gervais on a while ago, and he kind of transcended over two mini eras of the Islanders. E R A S. And so did you, because you were with that group with Ray and Pierre and everybody. And then you were there three or four years later because Don Maloney uh, made all those changes and things went off the rails and then Berry and everything. So, you know, but it it just it's really startling to see, you know, drape. And I hope none of these are uh, nightmares for you. But uh, Fisho, Lorenz, Fitzpatrick, Sodestrom, Salo, Tom Draper, Hexy, obviously, you know, Jamie McLennan, like, did, did we, I'll say, cause I was there, like, did the Islanders botch your development? Like, how do you look back and, 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 do you, do you just say, Hey, this is just how it happened?
1: Yeah, no, they didn't botch my development. I think they, they tried to develop me the best way they could. Um, you know, Billy Smith was there. They got me down to the East coast league that first year. Cause he was adamant. I just needed to play hockey. And with Fitzpatrick there, he said, you're going to be number five in the system. We're going to keep three at the NHL level, two at the AHL level. And if Fitzy needed to come down to the A, you're going to go to the East Coast League and play games. And they were transparent right from day one. They wanted me to play 50 games that first year. They were like, we need you to play 50 um, wherever it is. It's not a slight on you. We, you know, This is about development. So they used the East Coast League as a development tool. Um, the, I think personally... What hurt my development was the lockout in 94 because I should have gone to the minors and played. And at that time, I believe I had just kind of – they kind of handed me the reins to be the number one because I, I don't know if they traded Fitzy, and I think it was Soderstrom that came in. Sal, Sal was in the minors with um, Denver, I think it was. And Salo was my age, so he's there playing on a really good team in the minors. And I'm working out three times a week at Syosset. And, you know, as as the, you know, the lockout went longer, it was like, oh, we're going to skate five times. Now we're going to skate four. Now it's three. And now we're going to play football one day. And it's like, you know, I was 22. I needed to play. And that was, I had the choice. I could have gone, but I didn't want to because I thought I was the number one. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to see the minors again. That wasn't the Islanders' fault. That was my fault. And when i looking back on it, what was best for me is I should have gone down and played with Salo, and the two of us could have developed, and, and not that I would have had Salo's career. Salo was a better goaltender than me. But at that time, at that critical situation, it, in at that age, you need to play. You can't be on the sidelines just, you know, hanging out with your girlfriend or doing whatever. Like, I just – so that wasn't, I don't think the Islanders watched my developments. And then, if anything, we just didn't have a good team when when it when it came back. So, you know, not from after the lockout, but then you you mentioned the regime change. You know, at, at that point, there was players, good players leaving, and, you know, we weren't as good. So all of a sudden, statistically, you're not as good. I think Tommy Salo pushed ahead of me. Eric Fischo pushed ahead of me. Like, it, it just... It ended up not ending the way I wanted it or envisioned to. I I thought at one point I was going to be the kind of the goalie of the future and the guy, and then through you know through the lockout, through my choice, through just not playing, uh, and you know it took me a while to get back onto my feet at the NHL level, and that was what two years later in St. Louis. So um, I I never blame anybody. You know, if anything, it's always take a look in the mirror and see what you could have done better. Um, there's certainly some things I could have, but you know, at that point, it just you went from a really good team to kind of I don't know, if it would, would it be a rebuild, retool? Because I don't know what the hell they were doing. I mean, Chris, you you you're <laughs> you know the history of of what was going on there. It wasn't, uh, you know, it it was a circus. Know, I don't know, I don't state. know,
0: I don't know what you would. I don't think there was a word for it, a rebuild, <laughs> or retool. To be honest with you. <laughs> It's been, yeah. 20, it's, it's been 25 years, uh, Jamie, as, and I think it's a story that people know. I want to end the, these just with the last couple of questions, if you don't mind, is uh, you after what wound up being your last season with the Islanders, you con- uh, contacted contra- uh, did, uh, viral meningitis and it yeah. was serious as all hell. Uh, actually, for starters, can you just let the listeners know like how bad it got? You were in intensive care.
1: Yeah, so... That season, I had gone to Salt Lake City where our minor league team was. And then we also had a split team in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I also played in the NHL that year. So it was like I, I literally had places in all three places. So at the end of the year, I went from Worcester back to New York. Um, I had a, you know, I talked about basement suites and that. I lived on the island in some like, you know, gritty house above in the second floor. And my girlfriend and I were living there at the time. Went back there, hung out for a bit. And then I flew to Saint uh, Salt Lake City to pick up my stuff. And then I drove north to Lethbridge and I wasn't feeling well. And I just had fatigue. Um, I just kind of thought I was run down. And, you know, end of the season, you're drinking, you're just being an idiot for a week. And, and uh, I get to Lethbridge and I just wasn't feeling well. And I started vomiting and I saw these spots like forming right in front of my eyes. And basically I went to the hospital and the the doctor, um, I went right into ICU and I had, which was called meningococcal septicemia, which is uh, like a blood infection, bacterial meningitis. And I was in the ICU for, you know, a week, had to reteach myself to walk. A lot of times um, had that hit me somewhere else, it probably would I probably wouldn't have made it because the doctor told me I had an hour to live at that point, it could just stop my heart. Uh, but I happened to be in the hospital when all that happened. So um, I think it hits like a I don't I don't know the statistics now, but back then, um, most people have the natural antibodies to kill it. Mine didn't, and my body didn't. So um, I spent a month in the hospital and I reteached myself to walk. I knew how to walk. my muscles just weren't, you know responding, and uh, lost like thirty pounds. But I was fortunate enough that it was at the end of the season. And obviously, the Islanders didn't renew my contract. Uh, different story, long story. I'm not here to slay, slay uh, mud here. But um, the St. Louis Blues signed me. Mike Keenan signed me. He had, Actually, what's crazy is because I had ended the season in Worcester, and that was a split team with the St. Louis Blues, they kept an eye on me while I was in the hospital. And they knew I was going to have a full recovery, so they signed me to a two-year deal. It was a two-way contract so I could work my way back. And the year later, I was back in the NHL, but playing for St. Louis. So very scary, you know, getting a phone call or getting having to call my parents and say, hey, you know what? My heart could stop here. And uh, but I I made it through it. It wasn't my time to to go. That was 25 years ago. I'm 50 and that happened when I was 25. So um, I'm very fortunate, but uh, it was very scary, to be honest
0: is a is a life-changing thing i mean you were always a good guy we know each other pretty well but i mean does that just like give you another outlook
1: it does because i was a high anxiety guy and i think i was always a high anxiety um player and i think it taught me to kind of just enjoy life like i i i don't want to say i went crazy after that but i like i i certainly would enjoy myself on and off the ice and and you know, like, and what I mean by that is is I just didn't stress as much as I had those first couple years. Um, my whole focus was tunnel vision, hockey, hockey, hockey. I was nervous before games, not sleeping, that type of stuff, to the point where after that, I was like, you know what? I'll be fine. You know, like it. it and I just uh, I think it helped with my mental makeup and my psyche. But I certainly enjoyed life a lot more after that. But I will say I knew my body a lot better, too, knew the limits I could push it to and knew where I was. Uh, I needed rest and and rehydration and all that. So, uh, yeah, I did change a little bit mentally and physically, for sure, after that.
0: Hey, look, I, I got to ask, um, and and you please handle it as, as you, you wish, but it was... So, when I was thinking about what you went through and then thinking about how we didn't resign you, the Islanders didn't resign you, I'm thinking, oh, geez, did I even reach out to Jamie? Like, to, I, it's a different time, and, you know, maybe we're not always able to reach each other, but did the Islanders, or like, can you, did we just, dump you as like, it sounds fucking cold, man. But like, yeah. did you go through this thing where you had this near death experience? And, and, and listen, I get it. Maybe, maybe you're 90 pounds and it's like, well, I don't know if we can give this guy a one-way contract. Like, <laughs> right? if, we want, if, we, if we want to be hard, tough and like I get that, but was it, was it handled poorly? I, 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 no, I would I, like to know.
1: Okay. So here's, here's the only thing is I didn't, the Islanders, I knew, were going to let me go regardless. So that was the one thing. Okay. Darcy Regeer reached up and wanted to know how I was. This is – the only thing I would say is different is this isn't the era of, like, FaceTime or texting and that. Like, we're talking – this is 25 years ago. Like, how I had to call my parents was on one of those – like, the cord. They stretched the cord to the gurney, and I was like, hey. So what I – they never resigned me which is fine but i didn't like it's not like nobody you know it was like I, it, the the organization was dark put it that way like i think they were and 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 in fairness to them the information that it trickled out it wasn't again like it wasn't you could punch up online and go yeah mclennan's in icu with the you know meningococcal septicemia, and you know it was like Darcy Regeer called and was like, yeah, we heard you were sick. I didn't realize it was that bad. And how Darcy knew is I'm sure people in Lethbridge, because he has a history there, told him. It's like, this guy's in the hospital out here. So, you know, I look back on it. Is it, did they leave me out in the cold? No, I don't look at it. as like, oh, this guy's, you know, you know, but there wasn't uh, you know it wasn't front and center put it that way like st louis i i will say that st louis like jimmy roberts because he was my last coach called and checked how are you doing all of that type of stuff but you know i yeah at the end of the day it, it i wasn't abandoned by the islanders but it wasn't they weren't at the front of the line checking on me either put it that way so all
0: right i appreciate the honesty uh two quick easy ones to end with please your th- Eric show didn't have a problem with the fisherman jersey. He understood people loathing it because it was a logo change for a dynasty. Uh, but your thoughts on it. And the reason why I ask is because it is openly sold in the Islanders team store. There is a family with a fisherman jersey banner right down the block from me, the- a big flagpole the American flag and the fisherman. Uh, so, and, and there's always the chance, maybe not in a Lou Lamorello run team, uh, that they could wear it once or twice at some point. Uh, Lou, I'm not, asking, uh, I'm not asking Lou's opinion. I'm asking Jamie what he remembers about it.
1: I, okay, first and foremost, and I I am in the minority of this, I loved my gear setup. If I've got a picture still, in, and I'll send it to you guys if I can, when I when we hang up, I've got a jersey room at, at my house, and I had all of my jerseys. Uh, my wife, you know, said once for my birthdays or whatever, she did one of my jerseys uh, from every team. So I have a mask, my gloves, pads, an eight by ten, and my jersey, and I've got six of them because I played for six organizations. I don't have my fisherman jersey because I tried to buy it. The person who owns it wants like. for it, something ridiculous. And I was like, all right, I don't need it that bad. I might get a replica of it made. But I loved, there's a picture in that room of my setup. The colors, I loved them. I loved them, like, for a goaltender, because goalies always need to match and all that. I understood the history of it. You get, I mean, this is a legendary organization. Legendary. We just talked about Al Arbor, Bill Torrey, like, you know, dynasty and i think people took it as like this is a mickey mouse situation, a mickey mouse logo mickey mouse and then people are like that stan fischler it's actually not the fisherman you know like all of the jokes we've all heard that right so i get that but like if i just look at it i kind of think and and again i'm in the minority it's kind of neat to be a part of that because i don't know if it'll ever come back it's an nhl jersey an nhl you know it, whether it's hated or not I wore it. And I did, did I wear, did I take a lot of pride like wearing the Islanders logo? Y- you bet, that was my first, like that, they they drafted me, you know, they, they paid me, they, they tried their best. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't develop into what they had hoped, that's fair, I get that. But I took a lot of pride in it and I loved the colors, but I understand the vitriol that comes with with the traditional Islander, you know, fan base because of the logo because of the history of of winning and all of that so i can see both sides but i will say i i kind of uh i don't know i kind of liked it like just if i'll send you the picture that i i liked it's one of my favorite pictures somebody gave me in a in a in a i don't know what's that called a frame and i i I think it was awesome but i just i lose going to crawl through the screen and choke me out because i'm i'm talking nice about this logo but i no, I gotta I be never. honest.
2: I would never. <laughs> I would never. You know, you know, you know what it is for me as 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 someone who grew up an Islander fan. I'm all for change. It's just it was such a dramatic change that you know what. I like yeah. the idea. If they want to bring back the the Fisherman logo or not the logo, but the jersey when they went back to the original crest. Wait. Sure, wear that as a third jersey every once in a while. I love it when you see it in baseball, football, and basketball when teams wear their throwback uniforms. I think it looks cool. So sure, you know what, but it just represents such a dark time for so many fans, fans of my age and our age. That it's like, oh God, really? Well, I can't, I, I can't I, think of the Dane uh, Jackson years anymore. You know, it's like,
1: well, it's because we were no good either. That's the difference. If if that team was real, we started good, didn't we? Didn't we start good that year? I, it was mm-hmm, a shortened mm-hmm. season, right? Wasn't it? a – uh, we started like January 11th that year, didn't we? Or yeah,
0: not 48 I think, game season.
2: I think they should, I think you guys games. went 5 5 and 0 in your first 10 that year and it was like yeah, there was one point you guys were in first place. You were doing pretty well.
1: Yeah, and it fell off a cliff because I remember I I think I ended up like in the minors and like just uh, underwater, put it that way. Like I was like I was struggling. But yeah, that Okay, well it is what it we, is. We, I, I we, end so.
0: on, we end on a happy note. I, again, looking back and and then reliving it was to go to St. Louis, recover as you did, not just win the Master and Trophy, but to win hockey games and to play so great. Like was that was that the highlight of your career? And and what is your what did that whole that whole change mean to you? You,
1: you know what's funny is yeah, I mean going to have some success in St. Louis. Um, you know, I, I, the one thing that I've always, I think took great pride in is playing in the league a long time, developing friendships, developing relationships. Um, you know, my time in New York is honestly, it was my foundation years as a person. Like I, you know, I, I lived at Vincent's clam bar, man. Like I was eating chicken parm, the size of my head, like it just for, for, you know, pregame, like it was, you know, that type of stuff was like the greatest. Like for me, that was life. Like I, that's what I, I'm at, you know, McKeebs on Hempstead, like with all the Hofstra, you know, uh, students drinking, they only took cash because there was no credit cards. I, was, I, I remember like being in the parking lot after a game, I would change into a t-shirt, jeans and a hat so I could go hang out uh, on the Hofstra campus because I was 22. Like I, I have nothing but fond memories of the island. And then going on to St. Louis, it was kind of the maturation of me as a player and a person because, um, you know, I kind of grew up a little bit more, a little bit more focused, um, obviously a better team. So I'm playing with literally Chris Pronger and Al McKinnis ahead of me and Pierre Turgeon and Pavel Demetra and Brett Hull. And, you know, you, you, there, there's some stars there. Right. So star power. Um and, and we had a good team. We didn't finish what we started. We won the President's Trophy in 99. I thought we were as good as anybody. But, you know, you lose in the first round and change has to happen. You go in expansion to Minnesota. I, I thought that was really cool, being their first pick. Uh, I took a lot of pride in that. Statistically, it stunk. You know, I won five games that year. And, you know, you're, you're just hanging on for dear life every night. Because it's. Uh, I watched Seattle play Toronto last night. Like, it's that. it is what it is. It's expansion life, right? So I, and then going on to Calgary and the Rangers and Fort Florida, like you, you take a little bit from every organization and every guy that you played with. And I, I think it's, you know, a big part of how I was able to grow as a person and that was was my roots and that was the island. And every time I call a game back there, like I, you know, we could stay at other places. I want to stay at that Marriott. Like I felt like I lived there, right? You know, it's my, my life. And, you know, I just – that type of stuff, and I, I haven't been to the new arena yet. I'm looking forward to that. I'm supposed to call a game there in, in April, so that'll be cool. But uh, honestly, you know, having success in other places, um, it was nice, and it helped me last in the league a long time. Do I wish I could have had more success with the Islanders? Absolutely, because I, I will say this. Every time I watch an Islander game, and believe me, I watch a lot of them, um, I know the passion of that fan base. Like I know, like it's, I live in Canada. I live in Toronto, which they, you know, the, the Mecca of Toronto and the Islander fans are just as passionate and they're just as loud and they're just as educated and, you know, all of that stuff that come with it. It's, you know, Chris, I, I follow you on Twitter and Lou, I follow you. Like Chris, you're, you, you're always like the voice of reason for them. I laugh because I'm like, you're fighting with people want to trade this person, treat people like, and but you are, as, as you've gotten more grizzled, you're very honest, you, you give your assessment of like, hey, this is good, you know, this has been bad, this has been, and I don't mind that, but uh, I do miss it, put it that way. I, I miss the, the island, and every time I get a chance to go back, uh, I welcome it, and, and I will go back, Vincent's Clam Bar for that mild, uh, mild dipping sauce, I, uh, Pierre Turgeon used to bathe in it, that guy uh, would get like literally, he would get like cases sent to his house, like of, of the the dipping marinara sauce, I think I don't even know if it's still there anymore. But I I love that place.
0: It, it it's uh, Vincent's is now four for four at least on uh, being brought up. It's batting a thousand. Uh, Fichos shrimp Gervais coin. <laughs> I everybody has brought it up. I I keep on saying I got to go talk to the guys over there uh, about a sponsorship. Uh, oh, because for we, sure. We, 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 We've done ever. No, it's still very much there. The chicken parm is great. The sauce is great. We're going to uh, do a
1: live show from there. The three of there us. There you go. When I'm in town, if we can do an on-location live show from Vincent's, I, I think I would do it. I'll sign up for it if you can make it happen. When I'm in town, I, let's I, do it. Let's do it. We
0: can make it. We can make it happen. A guy can dream, and and we're going to pursue it. <laughs> Jamie, this was awesome. We took a lot of your time. Know you got a game good. coming up. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Thanks to Jamie McLennan. Thanks to Lou Pellegrino. This was Hockey Press Pass. We'll see you next time.